We are all born with a voice. The first thing we do within seconds of coming into this world is scream bloody murder. It's how our parents know that we are alive. Mm -hmm. That's one of the great gifts of life is this vocalization that we make the instant we are brought into this world. It's, it's proof of our existence. We are born with a voice. What happens is as we grow, circumstances make us lose faith in our voice and therefore we are less likely to share it. Welcome everyone to The Ultimate Shift. Join Ephraim Glick and leading figures in business and entertainment as they share their stories of regular people overcoming tremendous obstacles only to achieve happiness, success, and fulfillment. Are you ready to make the ultimate shift in your life? Okay, welcome back to The Ultimate Shift. Uh, today, I'm super pumped about our guest today, uh, Sean Tyler Foley, who is an, you're an actor. Uh, you're an author of the best-selling book, The Power to Speak Naked, uh, which is something I really want to dive into. So welcome to the show, Tyler. Oh, Ephraim, it's my absolute joy and pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And, and let's see how we can help provide an ultimate shift for your, for your audience, give them a little bit of perception around The Power of Speaking. Amen. And so, uh, Tyler, you're coming on from Calgary, Alberta. That is correct, sir. Calgary on that I know of. So, yeah, give us a little bit of your inside scoop from, uh, you know, where where you grew up and how you got into acting and then ultimately what led you to writing the book and just a few few minutes of kind of your your timeline of your life in, in the best way you know how. Oh, well, it's a circuitous journey. So let's buckle in for this one. (laughs) I started acting at six years old on stage. And that came about because my father passed away in a single vehicle motor vehicle accident. And um, I didn't really have an outlet to emotionally grieve his passing. Uh, When you're six years old, like death and and all of that stuff, the finality of it and what it's meaning. You know, you can understand that somebody maybe isn't coming back, but like that the the true concept of mortality is is definitely lost on a six-year-old. And so I didn't really openly or outwardly grieve my father's passing for probably six years. Wow. And I found the stage as an outlet and I was uh, very lucky that I had a supportive family, both uh, direct and, and extended, who really encouraged my artistic side and allowed me to express myself through this this wonderful medium of performance. And that spawned into a a 20-year career. I went to a fine arts high school, got into film film and television in my late teens, um, discovered stunt work and, and did a little bit of stunts in my early 20s. And then as most people who have a 20 year career, I retired. It's just when you start your career at six, it means you retire at 25. So I took all of my mad movie star money and uh, went and went back to school, got an, an engineering discipline, uh, geomatics, which for anybody who is in the know me is a fancy word for earth study or map making. And I specialized in photogrammetry, which was taking pictures of the ground and making the photo mosaics. So most people would be familiar with this if you ever go on to uh, Google Map, 
the pictures of the ground. That was my job was making those pictures. Wow. And um, yeah, it was it, it's, it's, it, it was fun at the time. And then, you know, Google Maps took off. And uh, unfortunately, my business did not. Uh, the business collapsed in a flaming failure, unfortunately. But uh, in that, when you're when that is your your main business practice, the main client that you have is the government. And most governments, when you work with them, insist that you have a safety system in place. And so I had all this safety training and a friend of mine who is a, a brilliant, brilliant businessman uh, needed a safety professional, a safety manager for his company because of a large contract that he'd gotten up north working in oil and gas and asked if I would upgrade my skills just slightly to be a safety officer. And so I agreed to go and be the safety manager for his his company. And while I was on this very large construction, commercial construction project up north in northern Alberta in the oil sands, speaking to guys who were way hardier than I was and, and definitely more skilled at trades than I was, I would be discussing with them how what they were doing was ridiculously dangerous and that when I was doing stunt work, jumping out of windows, that it was safer than what they were doing standing on an 18-foot ladder, um, not tied off. And an executive actually overheard me saying this uh, to one of the gentlemen and asked if I would give it as a keynote presentation. And then that kind of opened up my my mind and my awareness to this entire industry that I was really tailor-made for in public speaking because I've been doing it essentially all my life. 35 years now, I've been speaking on stage. But the joy was, for the first 20 years, I was saying other people's words. And now I had this ability to go on stage and say my own words and my own content and have my own ability to do that. And so that then became the focus of my career was giving these keynote presentations and and being a public speaker. The more I did it, the more people came to me and said, well, how do you do that? And and I, I naturally want to instruct people. Uh, my father was an educator and an entrepreneur. I've picked up both of those inherently from him. Uh, whether it's nurture or nature, somehow I, I've been given this gift. And so for the last um, five years, it has been a real focus of mine to train other people how to be more confident taking the stage, how to be more engaging while they're on the stage, and how to really truly tell an effective story so that your audience understands your messaging. And then subsequently from that, everybody kept asking how I did it. I was saying the same things over and over and over again. Eventually, a publisher came to me and said, hey, would you write a book? And now The Power to Speak Naked is available in bookstores everywhere. So that's that's the journey. That's awesome. What about like finding, getting to that place? So meaning when you started off, when you're six years old and you're, you're just starting to take the stage, you're doing some acting, this and that. At that point in time, what did you think that you would do or what did you want to do with your life? When you looked at, well, when I'm 20 years old, where did you see yourself at that? Uh, so when I was really young and even up into my early teens, in my head, I was going to go to university, very likely the um, 
UBC, if I would have picked one, University of British Columbia, and uh, initially would have would been a marine biologist. And then the, the dream kind of changed. I wanted to study anthropology for a long while. And in no iteration of any of those was being a professional speaker or author or photogrammetrist, <laughs> whatever within in the sphere of, of awareness. Performance always was, though. And when I got into my later teens, I was in a fine arts high school and was exposed um, a lot more to the probability that I could make a life and a career out of acting. And subsequently, you know, from probably 15 on, the focus always was and will forever be film and TV. Really? When you think of, I, I have people come to me and, and I believe in the power of manifestation in a way, not just manifesting what you want out of your life, but also doing, I think a lot of people leave the doing part out. I believe in, in creating, you know, I write journals in, in a journal every day. I, the life I live today was by 100% by design, by me writing out and then, then, then doing and I find a lot of times people come to me and say, or I've heard a lot of people say, well, you know, maybe they have this dream, maybe they're 12, maybe they're 15, maybe they're 20, and or they had this dream, and now they might find themselves at 30 or 40, and they're like, it, it changed, and they're unhappy that it changed, or, or they don't understand, you know, how they ended up over here in square B when they were shooting for Z or W, and you know, do you think with with your life and your experiences, your story, that have you always been open to the change and the adapting or was it more intentional? And what advice do you give to someone that's saying, like, I'm not really where I wanted to go. And, and how do you you know, what's the is there a right or wrong path to take? Uh, there's never a wrong path to take. There aren't necessarily always right paths. Um, we can definitely go down paths that are leading us away from the destinations that we want to go. But the thing to recognize is that we've always chosen to walk that path. So any, I would say to anybody who is in a place in their life where they don't want to be, I would analyze what were the choices that you made that led there. And then what are the choices that you can start to make to get you either back to where you want to be or somewhere different? One of the great blessings that I've had in my life is that I've never been locked on one destination at any given time. I, I've had this incredible gift to walk multiple paths uh, linearly at the same time. And so I, I, like, I think just even right now, I'm a safety consultant because I still have a safety firm but it is really self-sustaining. I don't, I don't have a lot of active input into that right now. My focus has been the book. So now I'm an author. Because of the book and the training that I do, I'm also a consultant and trainer. I'm also a father and husband. And a lot of these things were things that if you would have asked me 15 years ago, the majority of that would not have been on the radar. I wouldn't, I wouldn't own my own company. I certainly wouldn't be married. I definitely wouldn't have children. But all of these things came into my life and I am better for them because I have embraced the change. 
and I've, I've looked to adapt to see how it fits into my life. And one of the things that I learned early on in life and have been reinforced time and time again through various mentors, workshops, and everything is um, what Tony Robbins so eloquently states, life happens for you, not to you. And I remember in, and I think I was at, um, date with destiny in Florida and he was going through some of his affirmations that, that he writes down when he's, you know, and when he's journaling and trying to put it together. And, and at one point he, he had changed some of the phrasing, um, to look for the grace in any event. And as soon as I saw that phrase, I was like, that's, that's something that I'm going to adopt. Where is the grace in this? Because the things never go the way that we plan. You know, if you want to make God laugh, tell him what your plans are. And I've I've always been acutely aware of that, probably because of the circumstances in my life early on, that you can have a plan, but you also need to flex with the moment. Mm-hmm. And especially as I grew up in the arts and on stage, you know, that you can have a script and a director can have a vision and say that they want to stage this show. But the true beauty and magic in performance comes from the unscripted moments, the unwritten subtext that an actor brings to a scene that other actors bring as you play together. And so you may improvise words that then become part of the the show as a whole and will always stay, or you will find nuance or read a, a word or a line differently than what the director imagined or than any of your other cast had imagined, but that adds a gravitas and context to it that was unseen previously. And the same goes with life. Life throws us curveballs constantly constantly some of them are a test of our resolve to see if we're truly committed to the course and if we're going to sojourn on some of them are we will keep getting hammered by a tide or a current that is trying to push us in the right direction and we just need to pay attention to the signposts that keep pointing this way when we're going in the opposite direction right and the key is to know the difference between the two. When is it that you need to persevere and push through? When is it that you need to relax to the energies and let it go? And I wish I had the secret sauce to tell you how to do that because I do not. Do you tend to trust your gut a little bit more so than than maybe the voices of, of others in that situation? The older I get, the more I do. And from a 40 year history of not listening to my intuition and having it fail. And one of the greatest gifts that I've actually ever received, a friend of mine, Brandy Sador, introduced me to heart math. And there is a whole science into why our intuition and our instincts are real. There is a connection between heart, mind, and stomach. The, the stomach and the heart have neurons the same way that our brain does. The difference is our heart and our stomach neurons are operating at a subconscious level and are never interfered with on the, from a conscious uh, thought. And 
what happens with our mind is that we have our subconscious and our conscious, and they're very often in conflict. And one of the great things that I've seen uh, through this heart math study is when you can get your heart and your head aligned, how the uh, EKG, the electromagnetic rhythms um, and fields, how they align and, and they in fact, increase that electromagnetic resonance that your body naturally gives off, uh, that field increases when your heart and your mind are aligned. And I think when we say gut or instinct or intuition, those are all human descriptors of a sixth or a seventh sense that we all innately know that we have, but are maybe not fully tapped into or aware of. And this heart math um, study has been fascinating for me because it's allowing my rational mind to give way to the irrational and understand something that probably is impossible to truly conceptualize. But I know that in my heart and in my gut, that when I trust these over my mind, that I have the most success because they're usually in tune to energies that my conscious mind would probably not be otherwise. So when your heart and your mind are aligned, how do you know they're aligned? Is that when you just have that piece about the, the, maybe the decision, the idea, the, uh, it's it, what sometimes it's peace, sometimes it's conviction, sometimes it's drive. We know instinctively, and I would I would challenge any of your listeners. You know, I mean, it's called the ultimate shift for a reason. We we feel the energy, and when you're in conflict, I think to be honest, it's easier to know when you're in conflict than when you're in alignment, because conflict you feel the dissidents no, you feel the discord mm -hmm. you're yeah you you're stressed you're tight all of these things that are associated with uh being out of alignment mm -hmm. are things that we can physically feel within our body and when you are in alignment you that all lets go so it's it's real easy to identify when you are in alignment because there is an ease within your body and a relaxation. That's and think about all ahead. the people who live in this stress. And, and when you just simply apply that and you say, well, if if you're feeling stressed and uncomfortable and, and everything's out of line, then then you might be on the wrong path, correct? Like you might be doing something wrong. Okay, so there. You might be doing something wrong. You may not be on the wrong path, but how you're traversing the path is not efficient to your goal. So, you know, so like if I, if I want to summit Mount Everest, there are multiple routes that you can take or routes to get up to the summit uh, from two different countries. Some are more challenging than the others. But you still have to have the right equipment. You still have to have Sherpas to support you. If I want to traverse Everest, I can't go there in the clothes that I'm wearing right now. And so some of that discomfort, right? Everest may still be achievable. It may be where I need to get. I may need to summit that mountain. But the cold wind that I'm experiencing that's pushing me back down the slope 
is telling me to go put on a jacket before I try this again. And that's what we need to be aware of. It, it, it's not that the end destination is not achievable. It's that how we are trying to do it is not correct. But that doesn't mean that you get down to base camp and then catch a helicopter home. It means you get back down to base camp, regroup, and have a better strategy for getting up the mountain. Maybe learn something new or something. Exactly. So, you know, you're talking about the uncomfortable part of life, the, the stresses. And when you think about you at six years old, this, having the stress and the uncertainty of life, lose, losing your father, how did you then find your voice? Because in some scenarios, people tend to shut down in that, in, when they run into that or when, when you lose someone. And sometimes it's easier to shut down and, and maybe box yourself in. So if there's someone, any one of our listeners or anyone else that, that they want a voice, they want, because I think everyone should have a voice. I think everyone's voice is important. Everyone's story is important, but they don't know how to get their voice out. They don't know how to get their story out. They don't even know what the message is. You know, what did you do to find that? And how would you encourage someone else to find that? Well, so a subtle differentiator, people don't find their voice. They lose their voice. We are all born with a voice. The first thing we do within seconds of coming into this world is scream bloody murder. It's how our parents know that we are alive. Mm -hmm. That's one of the great gifts of life is this vocalization that we make the instant we are brought into this world. It's, it's proof of our existence. We are born with a voice. What happens is as we grow, circumstances make us lose faith in our voice, and therefore we are less likely to share it. I was lucky in that at six years old, I wasn't restricted, that I did experience great tragedy very young, but my voice was always heard. I was encouraged to speak up. I, I felt valued that I had input in both my family dynamic and in my social circles and in my vocational circles too. As, a, as an actor, I was encouraged to provide input into the scenes and to play and to explore the text and to explore my feelings and to explore the meaning within it. Subsequently, I am, I am not afraid to speak up. This is this. When you talk about feeling at ease and knowing when you're on the right path, when I feel the most at comfort, when I can tune out the world, is when I'm doing this right now, what you and I are doing together. To the point that my neighbor, as we speak, is out doing yard work and needed me to move my truck. And I was so tuned out on the last podcast that I was on that I didn't even know that he was knocking on the door until the podcast was over. And then I, I vaguely became aware that I could faintly hear music. And I went to check on it. And he was like, Oh, I've been knocking on your door for an hour. And I, I you know, like, because this, this is when I'm in my zone of genius, and nothing else matters, the world evaporates from me, and I am focused on you, and the audience and and serving. 
And so I know when I'm at my most comfortable is when I'm on stage or when I have a platform, when I get to share, when I get to teach, when I can really impart a message. And so to answer the other part of that question, how do people find their voice? It's not having to find it. It's having to rediscover it. They've lost it. It's not something that they've never had and that they're suddenly trying to search for. It's something that they've always had that may have been misplaced along the way. So it may require a deep exploration as to why. Some of the clients that I work with are just terrified because they've been conditioned to know that public speaking is supposed to be this scary thing. And they've heard it so often that they've believed it to be a true reality when it's actually a false veil. Some people have had horrible experiences where, you know, grade one or two or three, uh, a teacher asked them a question and they, they answered it wrong. And the students laughed at them or made fun of them for their response or, or the response was slightly different and, and, and they were made fun of or didn't get the, the praise that they thought they should or whatever it happens to be. They have this negative association or maybe the first time they went up to, uh, speak in public, they did experience stage fright, which is a true and real thing. You know, when people say that they're afraid of speaking, that is, that is not actually a reality. If people were truly afraid of public speaking, society would crumble. We couldn't exist. Commerce would collapse. You couldn't have a transaction because in order to have a transaction, whether you're buying clothes, groceries, or ordering food in a restaurant, you have to speak to someone who you very likely don't know to get a thing. Mm-hmm. And like you, you went into a bank to a teller, like you, we public speak all the time. So this, this myth that we're afraid of public speaking is, is not true, but we are afraid of public judgment. And very often that is a trigger for this feeling of stage fright of being in front of an audience and having a spotlight shone on you. And now all of a sudden having your opinion or your thought expressed and received incorrectly and that can cause stage fright. In fact, it's the biggest cause of stage fright. And um, instant feedback too. And you're, instant feedback. Instantly judged upon maybe what it is you're saying if someone's disagreeing or whatever. And if that was your first exposure to public speaking, then obviously you have a negative reaction to it. I'm lucky in that the first time I experienced stage fright, I was 14 years old. But I have been on stage since I was six. So that's, you know, a a very decent length of time, eight years of positive reinforcement of why the stage is a beautiful, supportive, creative place to be. So the first time that I experienced stage fright, it didn't deter me from getting back on stage. In fact, it was quizzical into why I had experienced it and something that I I reflected back on for many years until I realized what the root cause was. And that being, I was, I was afraid of judgment. And ironically, when it happened, so as a trained performer, I was often asked to read poems or, or recite text in school assemblies. And we had a Remembrance Day or Memorial Day, um, assembly in my ninth grade. And I had been asked to read uh, Flanders Field, very famous Canadian poem around Remembrance Day and, and the First World War. 
And I'd been reading that poem probably at that point, four or five years. I think the first time I ever read it um, publicly was I was probably 10 years old. And so it was one of those things where I I had the poem memorized at one point, and I, I think at that point it was memorized. And I was just, you know, I was prepared to give this speech. But at this particular assembly, they had invited a whole bunch of war veterans to to be there. And that wasn't unusual. But in this particular one, there was this man that was there and they wheeled him into the front in a wheelchair. And he had a a cane. I think he he must have used it to get in and out of uh, a vehicle comfort thing. What I remember about it is that he leaned forward on the cane just before I was about to give the, to recite the poem. And he leaned on it and he stared at me and he had these steely blue eyes and he was in full dress uniform, medals, uh, you know, the, the cap. He looked like he still belonged in that uniform and he looked like he had seen things and he was grizzled. He looked like if you had um, given Clint Eastwood a lemon wedge you know, he just looked like he wanted to just tear into the world. And I remember thinking in that moment that this man had seen the war. Like I'm about to read about poppies growing over the graves of dead soldiers, many of them unnamed and unknown and the, the sheer tragedy of it. But here I am, a 14-year-old kid in the mid-90s, the, the Second World War is 50 years ago. The First World War is coming on a century ago. And this man has seen one of those two. And I couldn't tell because he just looked old. Which one was it didn't matter, but he had seen things. And who was I to be reading to this man these words? They were so contrite at that point, and And I lost it. The poem that I had memorized for four or five years at that point was gone. Words gone. (laughs) Moisture from my mouth, gone. Feeling in my extremities, gone. It was all gone. And I didn't know what to do. And looking back on it, what it was is I was afraid of this man's judgment. I was afraid, not of everybody else's, but specifically this individual's. What would he think of me? What if I didn't give it the gravitas that it deserved? What if I didn't honor his sacrifice? And all these things guaranteed that man was not thinking. But it was what I was concerned with. And so it's that fear of public judgment that we need to get over and, and really just encourage, I would encourage your audience to know that you don't need to be afraid, that it, it can be a wonderful experience. And if you've had a negative experience, look at why it was. And if that is actually a, a continual thing or if it was a one-time thing. Is that what you mean? Is that what you're trying to maybe attribute to when in your book? When you talk about the power to speak naked, is it just to basically, you know, here's here, here I am. This is what I believe. This is what I know to be true for me. And this is what I'm trying to help you with. And, and you're just giving it your all and let the chips fall where they may kind of an idea. Absolutely. On its deepest level, that is what I want people to get out of the book, to have the power to speak their raw naked truth. Uh, we hear so much in the industry right now about authentic speakers, and I hate the word. I hate it. It just, I think it's overused. I think it's a buzzword, and I don't think a lot of people truly understand what authenticity is. Authenticity to me is synonymous with self-awareness. You need to know who you are intrinsically in order to come across 
genuinely to your audience. And any deviation from that, we can feel. We as a society have this innate sense of when somebody is not being right, when they're not telling us the full truth, you know, lying through omission. And what I want to do is to empower people to be able to, first of all, discover who they are. Because a lot of people walk around, and myself have been included in this, we walk around blind to who we are truly at our core. What are our motivations? What are our core values? What drives us forward? And until you can recognize that within yourself, you can't express it outwardly. And then having the courage to know that your message is not for everyone. The thing that you're going to say, if it's said well, is very likely going to be polarizing. One of the greatest gifts that I was given in the last 24 hours I have been a public figure for 35 years. And yesterday, I received my first hate mail. And it brought me joy because it meant I finally was saying something that was polarizing enough that somebody would stand up and challenge me. Mm -hmm. And the great thing is, is I can defend every point that this individual brought forward to me. But I also understand his point of view. And that's the thing that I'm not afraid of the challenge. In fact, I encourage it. I I want critical thought. I don't want people to just spoon feed these things that I say them and and take them at face value. I want you to be critical with it. Does it make sense or doesn't it? And if it makes sense to you, great, let's implement it. If it doesn't make sense to you, challenge me on it because I may be wrong. But I'm not I can't know that if you don't challenge me. And so the greatest gift that this gentleman gave me was 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 very vocally and very publicly challenging me because not only did he fire me off an email, he wrote about it on his blog. And I am so happy about it. You have no idea. It's It, it made my day. It's probably made my week and my weekend um, just to know that I finally, finally got to a point where I have opposition and challenge because that means that I'm doing the right thing, finally. I love it. I, I think I often think what, what people tend to maybe forget, whether it, it's reading a book or listening to a speaker or, you know, I've spoken on stage and, and, and I think what I usually try to get through is this is my story. These are my ideas. And maybe there's parts of my story and parts of my ideas that you can implement within your story and your idea to make it better. But it's not so much so that everything I say, you have to take for face value because you didn't live my story. And the same with books is like, you know, I I do a ton of reading and sometimes I'll, I'll hear people say, well, I didn't like that book. I didn't agree with him, but okay, great. But like, was there not some aspect of that book that challenged your thought, that challenged your belief, that maybe made you question, like what you said, that that re, kind of reiterates maybe what you believe or, you know, and I think people tend to forget that, especially nowadays. It, it's more of a, you know, we now live in cancel culture to where it's like, well, you think differently, therefore you have no value. And, and I think that's a very dangerous precedent to set for humanity because we're not that's not how we're designed to grow 
Well, and I think one of the other uh, real dangers that I've seen in in lately is this belief that what I believed 10 years ago are still my stance today. That there's no room for evolution and that you have to completely and totally reject who you were 10 years ago. I made dumb statements 10 years ago, 15 years ago. In fact, I had one that came back to bite me viciously a few years ago where um, I'm in Canada. So, you know, ice hockey is in my veins and I'm a goaltender and I was playing in a league and I wasn't having fun. I I was on the a team that had a, a not just a losing record, they'd never won a game. We had, a, you know, an O, I think it was O26 and one record. So we had a tie. We were winning that game, by the way, until my team scored on me. We won a faceoff and the guy turned around and just shot on me. I don't know why to this day. We were winning and that was the one tie that we had. It should have been a win, but it wasn't. And so that that was the mindset that I was in. And I remember emailing the league uh, commissioner and saying that I no longer wish to be affiliated with the league, that I didn't want to play it any longer. Fast forward uh, eight years later. I'd completely, totally forgotten about it. Didn't even recognize, like the league at the time was just in its infancy. I played in its inaugural season. It's now a well-established league. It, it was, and at the time too, it was just a morning thing. And now they had afternoon and evening games. And a friend of mine needed a, a their goaltender got injured and he needed a spare, a, a backup goalie to play for two games. And he said, would you do this? I said, sure. He said, you need to um, reach out to the commissioner and, um, fill out the waiver and then we'll get you on well the commissioner had remembered what i had said like and verbatim like he sent it back to me he said you said you never want to be affiliated with the league again so now you can't be wow and i remember thinking if you knew me eight years ago and if you knew me now you would have no you you have no idea the the vast evolution of tyler foley in that time period mm-hmm. you know that that young man who was so angry was also broke. Like I was, I was, I was on my, I was maxed out credit. Like I was, I was just destitute. Uh, I couldn't even afford rent. Um, and had actually moved in with my girlfriend and in her mom's house for a month just to try <laughs> get a reset. Um, and I, I was in a dark, dark place, but, and I didn't think I'd ever be married or have children. You fast forward eight years later, I'm married with a kid. You know, so like, like the a complete evolution of who I was and, but yet the, the, what I had said in that time, he was judging me for it. Fast forward a few years later, I, I put up a post in, in a Facebook group, you know, I just got new pads and I wanted to break them in. And we're at a time where, you know, rec hockey keeps getting canceled and, and not canceled and reinstated and all this stuff. And so I, I needed to find ice time. And the league reached out to me. And the first thing I said was, you're going to want to talk to your commissioner because I'm pretty sure he doesn't want me on the ice. At which point he jumped in on the chat because he had access to it and said, I want to apologize to you. I've been following you on social media. We're on LinkedIn. We're on Facebook together. I see what you're doing. I'm sorry that I didn't give you this opportunity two years ago. I judged you. I feel bad about it. People can change. Yes, I would like you to have this ice time. And it was the greatest 
feeling for me of validation that that people can change. And my concern with cancel culture right now is that we're looking at people's tweets. Tweets. The president of the United States used to do that from his toilet. Former president of the United States. And, And how is this this thought that somebody had fleeting 10 years ago indicative of who that person is now? Could it be insulting? Could it be grossly uneducated? Absolutely, yes. But do we need to then completely, totally remove them from everything that they've ever done? What has happened to the human capacity for change? And what has happened to the human capacity for empathy too? Like, have we never made a mistake in our life? Are we so pristine? One of the teachings from the Bible is, you know, he without sin be the first to cast a stone. I can't start throwing rocks right now because my glass house will shatter. So I don't know how you can or anyone else can. And and it it just, it boggles my mind right now that I could be persecuted for expressing my belief. How else can you educate me or convince me that I should see the world differently if you don't first hear how I see the world? Mm -hmm. I need to be able to let you know how my worldview is how it was formed, and not be attacked for my views if you ever want to be able to change my opinion of it. Right. You need to know where I'm starting from so that you can get me to an end destination. And by censoring me, it's not going to serve anything. Your point is? Yeah, well, I was just going to add to it. It's having that conversation. It's, you know, if, if you want, if I want you to change your belief system to mine, which is indicative of me to, to request that of anyone, you know, it, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, but if I just cancel you, like you said, that, that, but if we have a conversation, maybe we can have a dialogue in there of understanding and coming to that point of, of, of this mutual understanding of each other to where then, and I think that's the great thing about podcasting. And I often think you know, the podcasting world has blown up in the last five, 10 years. And maybe, you know, the, the media we now have is so, you just don't ever know anymore. And so, and sometimes I think, you know what, maybe podcasting will solve humanity's issue of communication. Eventually, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's just, it's a thought. I think it has the possibility as long as we don't get stuck within the echo chamber that social media tends to push us into. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I love doing is listening to, you know, Joe Rogan or um, yeah, Joe Rogan and and Howard Stern. You know, they're fighting right now. They don't. They're on two opposite sides of a, of a debate. But there are other times where they're on the same side, and you have to have these different viewpoints so that you can as- assimilate the information that's being presented and understand that two people can have different points of view and still be right. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Like that, you know, I, and I'm loving this debate currently between the, those two individuals in particular, because I look at them both and go, I understand where you're from. But because of their format, I'm able to hear their rationale. If the two of them were locked in a room and just bickering, I would tune it out. But because I can hear 
Joe Rogan say, well, you know, these are my thoughts on, you know, vaccination. These are my thoughts on health. This is because I do this, 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 this. And then I can hear, you know, Howard Stern, who typically I don't agree with. And typically I'm, I agree with um, Joe Rogan more, but I hear, you know, him go off on, well, everybody should be in this part of the problem. And, well, you know, and I hear, I hear both sides of the view and I can go, I understand you both. And that I think is what we have lost currently with it, particularly with this count, uh, cancel culture that is prevalent is the ability to understand that just because I don't agree with your point of view doesn't make you wrong, but it doesn't make me wrong either. We can both be right and have separate points of view. And I, and I right now, if I was to look at you, you are south of me. I am north of you. Those are the facts. But it's only if we view the world as the North Pole being north. Mm -hmm. What makes the North Pole north? Why is the South Pole not the top of the world? It's arbitrary. So am I above you or below you? It, it It's purely perspective. And I can be right on both. I can be above or below you. It just depends on my worldview. I am not, neither one of us is wrong for assuming either or. And, and I think that's what has been lost currently. Yeah. And on top of that, I use that analogy. There's a certain percentage of the population who's like, you're both wrong. The world is flat and there is no north. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it takes all kinds, I guess. Um, I, I know we're rounding up on time, but but I am curious on your take. You know, when we talk about authenticity and, and that's something that, that I love talking about with. I don't have TikTok, but. You, I, people send me TikToks and things like that, and and I understand what it is, and I've I've been on it and <laughs> see it. But now we have Instagram, we have Instagram Reels, and, and for me, my social uh, media drug, if you want to call it, is Instagram. That's pretty much the only thing that I ever participate in. But with with all of these things, and like you were saying before, you know, it kind of puts you in your own little echo chamber of people who agree with you. How can we authentically, uh, and, and I don't have kids, but if you have kids, you know, for our listeners, teach your kids to, to be themselves without having to fit within that mold of everything they're being shown. And, and how do we keep from becoming just a world of four echo chambers, if you will? You, you know what I'm saying? And, and what's your take on that? Well, I know I, I'm very lucky. Um my daughter's six and, and she's just started the first grade. Uh, we've put her into an incredible school that is purposely designed to encourage critical thought that the educators are there as resources, but they want the students to come up with their own conclusion and then be able to support it. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the great things is debate. So like when my daughter wants to do things, I will say, great, why? You know, tell me why. And I will tell her why I feel that she shouldn't get to do some of these things. 
you know, from either my experience, world understanding, or just societal norms, you know, she wants to run through the sprinkler without any clothes on. That's fine, but she can't do it at the splash park. Well, why? Well, that's a good question, honey. I don't know why. Um, and, you know, but where we live currently, you're at your age, you're not allowed to do. And these are the rules that are around that. But she is challenging the assumption and she should always be allowed to challenge the assumption. Because there are other places where she can do that. Mm -hmm. Right. Where that isn't considered a, a societal taboo. And so, you know, letting her understand that that she is not wrong. But allowing children the opportunity to discover the world on their own, through their own lens, through critical thought. So one of the things that I will always do is, is I will challenge her view. And it's weird, you know, because I'm debating a six-year-old. But in doing that, I'm often surprised at the rationalizations that she comes up with. They are sometimes absolutely staggering to the point where I got to be like, you know what, honey, you're right. <laughs> you want to do this thing? Let's do this thing. This is my reservation on it. And so I want you to know, but you have convinced me. And I think that's important too, that I don't have to be autocratic with my authority. Mm -hmm. That I show her that her voice matters, that she has input, and that she needs to, if she wants to change the world, she has to come up with a rational argument. And it starts as, as very little as, I understand you don't want to eat this food that I've put in front of you. Why should I make something different? I love that. Yeah, I, I think that's one thing we're missing is critical thought. And, and when you take that out of the schools and soon you have a whole generation of, of well, kind of what we have, I, I guess which is sometimes scary. Well, look, man, I, I, your time's valuable. And I, there's so many questions I wanted to get to that we never got to, but it, this has been amazing. I, th I think just your story in itself is, is pretty amazing how you come from, you know, losing your father at six years old to building everything you have and, and understanding the importance of helping people find their voice and their why. And, and so many people, especially now they want they want that platform and i think you know you're a great resource for anyone whether they want to be tiktok or a social media famous or whatever and and exploit their voice and their their why and their reasons and story uh how can people find you follow you uh you know basically get to hear you speak just find you go to your website well, yeah, so the best way to reach me is on the website, seantylerfoley.com. Sean is spelled the proper Irish way, S-E-A-N-T-Y-L-E-R-F-O-L-E-Y.com. And they can find everything from me there. They want to connect on the socials, they can uh, get copies of the book there. They can uh, find out what our training schedules are, where we're going to be, events that we're putting on. Um, and, and whatever they want. All things me are on seantylerfoley.com. Um, and I would thank you, Ephraim, for giving me the opportunity to be on the ultimate shift and, and have this opportunity to be in front of your audience. And uh, if they liked what they heard today, I would encourage them to hit pause on their device right now and give you a five-star review so that you can get more guests on. 
Uh, it's not just uh, me who who needs to be here. There are other influential thought leaders out there that uh, could benefit your audience. And the only way to get them on is is to really grow the podcast. And the only way to do that is through those five star reviews. So don't just give it a five star. You know, go back, listen to a couple of episodes, say which one your favorite one is, and 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 let you know from what the is is working for them and what what content they need to provide because as much as we don't want an echo chamber we still need support and you know so the audience will dictate and and but the only way they can do that is to use their voice and give you a five-star review and tell you what's uh what's working and what isn't so if they could do me that favor i would appreciate it i love it last question if you were um Given the world stage and you could just say one thing that you feel like the world needs to hear, what would that be? Be aware of how many times you tell your children to be quiet. Wow. I think that is the beginning of everyone losing their voice. And I was lucky that I grew up in a house that never, I, it wasn't a phrase that I heard. But I became very conscious of how easy it is as a parent when you need the quiet to just tell your child to shh. And I could see the physical transformation within my daughter when I did that. And that develops a pattern where silence becomes standard. And so if I had a world stage and a world platform, I would challenge all parents to find alternate ways to reduce the noise in your house than using the phrases, be quiet. I love that. I've never, never heard anyone say that, but I love that. Well, to our listeners, I appreciate you guys listening to this. I highly recommend go follow Tyler, Sean Tyler Foley. We'll have all of the links in the show notes as well, uh, including your website where they can just click on and find you. So I appreciate you being here. Um, It's been just the hours flown by for me. So I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you for having me on. It was a pleasure. Thanks again for tuning in to The Ultimate Shift. Look, I know life is crazy. Life gets busy. And we all kind of have an idea of where we want to go and where we want to end up. But there's so many things that come up in between. And my goal with this show is to grab one thing from every guest that we can apply to our lives that help get us closer to our end goal you can follow me on instagram at ephraim glick facebook at ephraim glick twitter at glick ephraim or you can go to the website at ephraimglick.com see you next time